This week, we have the interview you've been waiting for. Find out who it is and what we talk about here on this episode of the Indie Ball Report podcast. All right, we are back again. Another episode of the Indie Ball Report podcast, episode 105. And for a very long time, we've been kind of teasing on this show that me and Will are going to have a, a very big name guest on and that you guys are going to be really excited for. In fact, we've been teasing this since November. And finally today, we have that guest on the show. We have the interview in the can. You're going to hear it in less than five minutes from now. And by checking out the little title card that's on every episode, you probably already know who it is. But I guess we should tell you who it is just in case you are still unaware. The chance to sit down with Atlantic League President Rick White. Yes, that Rick White uh, was nice enough to come on the show. We had... I believe nearly an hour-long discussion. I think it's like, what, around like a 50-minute discussion there? Yeah, I believe it's about 50 minutes and change. And he was only yeah, supposed so- to come on for about a half hour, too. And he gave us extra time, too. So really appreciate that as well. Yeah, so there's so many things that w- that we touched on with Rick, so many questions uh, that, that we asked on our part that he gave he gave a lot of great answers to. So I think, I think you guys will really enjoy it. If you're probably thinking of a question... Uh, that uh, that you're wondering about the Atlantic League, chances are we asked it, and chances are Rick White probably answered it. So really, really, but this is obviously this is my favorite uh, interview. I can't I can't top it. It's interviewing with Rick White, as big of an Atlantic League geek as I am. It's, it's very exciting, and uh, I, I can't wait for people to hear it. Exactly, it was a really fun time to do it. I still have a dozen more questions to ask here. I felt bad about you know taking any more of his time because, like I said, he nearly gave us double the amount of time he was originally supposed to. So right. definitely appreciate that. Also, I do like you mentioned with his answers; they're very thorough. Like they're not short little couple minute answers where it's like okay we ask a question and then you give me like a two minute just i answer the question enough he gave very thorough answers to every question we asked i mean like we'd ask him a question it'd be five seven eight minutes later and then he'd finally wrap up his answer very articulate uh very thorough and so like will said he didn't go around any question either he addressed each one and that's obviously extremely appreciated and uh you guys are really going to enjoy this interview and I'm not sure if there's anything else we need to say about it going into it. And I think you guys are about as excited to hear it as we were to conduct it. So unless we have anything else left to add going into it, I think we can kind of just jump into it. No, I don't think we have anything else left to add. Let's get right into it. All right, then. So without further ado, here is our nearly hour-long interview with the president of the Atlantic League, Rick White. All right, we are back again for another interview here on the Indie Ball Report. And I have to say, I think this is going to be the one that everybody really enjoys. We've been teasing this on and off very vaguely for months on end now. I don't really think our next guest needs much of an introduction, so I will just simply put, please now welcome to the show the president of the Atlantic League, Rick White. How are you doing today? 
Nick, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. It's our pleasure to have you on. Uh, I think we all are very well versed with how much of an Atlantic League fanatic that Will here is. So I've told him numerous times, uh, this interview I'm going to let him take the reins on. And so while normally I would start off with asking a handful of questions here, I think I'm going to let Will kick this one off here and just let him steer this one here. Because like I said, he knows the Atlantic League like the back of his hand. So Will, take it away. Well, I, I appreciate that, Nick and Rick. Of course, so so grateful that you, you're taking the time to, to be on the show. It's a super exciting interview uh, to be able to conduct, and been looking forward to it for a while. But obviously, this season, uh, the 2020, uh, and of course now into 2021, has been unlike anything we've ever seen from from the Atlantic League or indie ball slash partnership ball. So I guess the logical place to start is. The Atlantic League lost Somerset and Sugarland uh, to affiliated baseball. Um, so, and both of them were such great franchises uh, for a long time in the Atlantic League. So, I guess from your perspective, when did you know that Somerset and Sugarland, I guess specifically, uh, losing them to affiliated ball was going to be a possibility? And you know, did you have like mixed emotions to, to potentially losing such great franchises? I guess what was your mindset during that whole process? Well, it's a good question, Will. And, and we began to hear about this, oh, last year, maybe May or so. First from our friends in Somerset, and then uh, maybe a month, 45 days later from our friends in Sugarland. Um, and it was one of those things where everybody kind of tiptoed around the issues, but we began to, because of our relationship with Major League Baseball and because of our relationship within the broader minor league baseball community, we began hearing things. And then ultimately we began to hear some things from, uh, more Somerset than Sugarland, but we became aware of what was going on. Uh, in hindsight, there are only two ways somebody can look at this. And, and uh, one of them is it's a tremendous loss for the league. I think we were adding it up the other day and we were looking at annualized somewhere between 750 and 800,000 persons who went to see both of those teams play every year. And second, while bittersweet, we wish them well. Uh, what a testimony, not just to two great franchises, but to the Atlantic League and the fact that Major League Baseball clubs felt that these two clubs in particular, and I should add quietly, two other clubs that were contacted by MLB clubs, might have a place in the PDL community is tremendously flattering to the league and great testimony to the quality of the league and its owners and employees and players. and. Again, yeah, all you can do is say, good luck, and we're happy for you. So while bittersweet, it is, it is still something where when, when it became obvious to us that this was likely to happen, we redoubled our efforts in terms of working with MLB to discover what we could do with those contracted clubs that might be available in our community. So I'd love to know more about uh, those contracted clubs because there were certainly certainly no shortage of them for you guys to look at. So what I really want to know is just what was that process like 
looking for new Atlantic League markets. I guess was it you and uh, you and the rest of the the, the higher ups at the in the Atlantic League going to teams, pitching them, trying to convince them to join the Atlantic League, or did you have essentially teams lining up to try to join the Atlantic League, and you got to pick and choose which markets you, you were interested in and which ones you weren't? How did that process work? How did, how did that all shake out in your mind? Because of our relationships throughout the game, we had probably a 90% accuracy in terms of predicting which teams were going to be contracted and which, commu- which communities were going to remain as potential PDL clubs. And as we became more secure in our knowledge about that list, but prior to the publishing of the, or the publication of the 120 surviving communities, we elected to do something that most people found uh, a little counterintuitive. We began calling municipalities, counties, and other baseball landlords or baseball park landlords not trying to poach or to create suspicion in those communities, but to suggest that if they found themselves on the outside looking in, we constituted a viable alternative. But until such time as the list became final, we were not going to contact the team, its owners, or anyone else. We merely wanted to let people know that we were there, and if we could be useful, we wanted to take that role. After the list of 100 to 120 surviving communities was published, things became a little bit more interesting. There were some communities that we never even contacted, even though they were within our broad eastern territory. There were other communities that we had keen interest in, and whether it was with an introduction courtesy of Major League Baseball, whether it was picking up the phone to call them directly, or whether it was some other form of introduction, we would be in contact with them. And still other communities, owners would reach out and and contact us. And so there was kind of that triplicate sort of way of, of looking at the thing. And we never considered ourselves to be in a competition. Uh, you know, if you start to sell against other leagues, you're probably not terribly confident about who you are and what you have to offer. What we did do, and it took hours and hours and hours, was describe to owners, general managers, in some cases, uniform personnel, who we were what our financial circumstances look like, what the league was about, our purpose as a league. And as we went through those dynamics, things started to sort themselves out. So we found ourselves occasionally bumping up against, oh, the Frontier League or the American Association, but just as often uh, bumping up against people considering the uh, now Major League Baseball Draft League, which uh, some clubs decided they would go with. As well, we found ourselves dealing with owners who in some cases were frustrated and didn't either want to continue uh, in the communities that they'd previously served or who had um, the idea that they might ultimately litigate against Major League Baseball or their respective parent club. And again, we respect those decisions. We would not engage or get in the middle of those decisions. Uh, and, and we just, again, just kept talking to our story as opposed to addressing 
extraneous issues. As you can imagine, when formerly affiliated clubs were beginning to contemplate the costs associated with everything from dues to, you know, our hotel costs and who bore those costs, you know, in addition to things like worker compensation, player salaries and compensation, coaches and so forth, it, it, it got to be pretty complex and uh, relatively involved. The one universal question we had, and we still get that to some degree, uh, are those people who say, how in the world do you find players? Right. And if you think about it, it makes all kinds of sense in the world, right? All of these communities were receiving players courtesy of a big league club. They were receiving coaches courtesy of a big league club. Were self-contained, fully baked uh, P&L statements, and those P&L statements are driving our teams. So there's a lot of discussion around how do I find players capable of competing in the Atlantic League. Uh, but the exercise bore fruit, and uh, along the way, we got to know owners and communities far, far better than we could have ever hoped for. And because of the way things played out, while we were kind of the last to know officially who the 120 clubs were, we were among the first to know who was going where and, and where we could anticipate we might have some opportunity moving ahead. So a, a couple parts of, of your answer I, I found interesting and I'd love to follow up on. Uh, as far as the you mentioned the decisions that these individual owners had to make, of course, the litigation aspect being one of them we've seen uh, formerly affiliated teams, uh, a couple of them on the Eastern Seaboard try to uh, try to sue Major League Baseball and their parent club or whatever. So I guess my question to you would be if a team like it was a good market and a team said that we want to pursue litigation against major league baseball due to your, due to the Atlantic leagues part, like pretty heavy partnership with the MLB. Would that mean that they can't join the Atlantic league due to the partnership? If there's pending litigation. Well, there are several steps to that, but the short answer is no, they would not be able to, um, Major League Baseball, as part of their commitment to replace top-notch baseball in these communities, has worked with us to come to an agreement regarding the financial circumstances surrounding acquisition of our league memberships, which are then bestowed upon these communities so they can engage in the Atlantic League. Technically, an owner could have said, I want to sue Major League Baseball can I still join your league? And oh, by the way, I'll pay for the membership myself. And we could have considered that. Major League Baseball did not put any constraints upon us, given that hypothetical situation. As it turns out, nobody ever did ask us about that in those those terms. Uh, in one community that most people are familiar with, they did join another partner league and they did announce after joining that league that they're litigating against major league baseball. Right. But we would not have moved forward with a team that was suing major league baseball and trying to join us at the same time. It isn't that we don't respect that, uh, you know, clubs and owners need to do what they need to do. And for, 
every minor league team out there, there were 140 circumstances that were unique, some happy, some unhappy, a lot in the middle that had to do with a lot of disappointment, frustration, no matter where things were going to end up. But we do deeply value our relationship with Major League Baseball. It's proven to be beneficial to the league. We think it's proven to be beneficial to Major League Baseball as well. And we were not going to jeopardize the progress we've made over past years creating that relationship with baseball. It just it makes too much sense to us. And so we think we're we, we, we think we have a point of view. We think the point of view is valid. Not everybody would agree with it. But again, we don't try to pass our judgments along to anybody else and we would hope and expect they do the same with us. Uh, that's really interesting, and and I I really appreciate you like you know not dodging the question and going right uh, and directly answering the question. That's this is something that Nick and I have talked about uh, on the show um, previously when that when that market was kind of up there, and we were talking about how great of a market it could potentially be for four different partner leagues. The one other thing of your I guess your initial answer that I wanted to talk about before I I threw it over to Nick was that you mentioned that owners, I mean, a lot of owners, when they were uh, calculating the costs, of course, that are associated with becoming, um, joining the Atlantic League or any partner league and leaving affiliated baseball, and it was kind of daunting to them, and some owners decided to just step aside or uh, pursue other options uh, outside of the partner league circle, of course, the MLB Draft League being one, but as I'm sure you probably saw at the league office, while those might have been cost, uh, while like internally those might have been cost driven, they would, they would, some teams would put out, you know, different statements saying like kind of essentially like talking about the Atlantic League as that like this, of course, me, uh, you, and of course, Nick know how talented the Atlantic League is and how great the Atlantic League is. But did you, did you, I guess, hear like the statements and I guess the, the fan show that some teams will put out saying like, Oh, the, the Atlantic league is, uh, it, it's a subpar league and stuff like that. How did that, did that make you feel any type of way or did you kind of just ignore it and go about your business? You know, I can't say that we saw everything that was written or heard everything that was said, but I, I think I do know at least one of the specific references you're talking about. And we're aware of that. You know, our point of view is all diamond sports are good, whether it's a 10-year-old playing Bobby Sox softball or a 12-year-old playing Little League baseball or somebody engaged in high school or college softball or baseball. It's all good. And that goes for the professional stage as well. Uh, people had to make really difficult decisions in uh, what seems like a, a, a great, you know, a great deal of time, but really wasn't that long a time at all. Um, Major League Baseball took a long, long time to get the, to that list of 120. And on the heels of that, people were trying to make decisions. People were hurt. People were dismayed. Some were elated. But all of those emotions turned into kind of a free-for-all, almost a chaotic sort of mind play. And people probably said things that, while purposeful, maybe under maybe under different circumstances they wouldn't have said. We know there were people formerly in affiliated ball who 
considered the Atlantic League for many years, rogue or maverick or uh, somehow operating with, you know, on the outside of what they considered to be convention. While that for us is a curious point of view, it's out there. What was really important for us in this process was the recognition of the Atlantic League as the first, but certainly not the only, professional partner league. Now, Major League Baseball is going to add amateur partner leagues and partner leagues that may sound a little counterintuitive. But the point of fact for us was they were giving us formal recognition consistent with our conversations leading up until last October that said to the entire universe of professional baseball, we respect, we recognize, and we will work with the Atlantic League and other partner leagues. Um, the fact that an operator or an owner in this market or another might say, well, that's not for me, is, again, their choice. We respect it. And while we might be disappointed at words, that's all they are, words. It's not, that's not going to hurt us. Um, we're going to do fine. And I think that if you look at what we do over this and the next two years, you will see that there is a plan at play. You will see that there's room to be extemporaneous, but we are going to be going to places that people can predict. That um, we're uniquely settled to be in, and if another community doesn't think that we're uniquely set, certain or uh, situated to be in their community, we respect that and we wish them well. And I guess as we probably move into the the future of the Atlantic League, I definitely want to give Nick the the chance to ask anything that that might be on his mind. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess I kind of want to start with some of the questions I have just relating back to the partnership just a little bit here, because I know I've seen online when we saw the other partner leagues get added into the fold, in addition to the Atlantic League, that there was some concern about all the independent leagues or formerly independent leagues losing that kind of maverick spirit like you were just mentioning. And I, I do want to just ask what more the partnership will kind of do. Uh, we know from the 2019 season what it can look like. And so I'm just curious if there's anything different going into the 2021 season and to anyone that may, you know, be concerned about the way the tea leaves may be read, if there's any reason to be concerned. Personally, I think the partnership has done well and will continue to do well, but I do know there are some that are more skeptical of it. Well, and, and, and I think, I think that Skepticism is probably fairly founded given the events of the last 24 months in the professional baseball landscape. That doesn't mean we should be mistrustful. It just means that we should be open-minded and unafraid to question one development or not. Now, the most obvious answer to your question, Nick, is in terms of our test rules and equipment partnership, the rules we expect are going to change. We were well along our planning for the 2020 season when we had to cancel the championship season due to COVID-19. But as we move forward this year, we are going to see some changes in the test rules and equipment we're utilizing. Uh, I don't think they're going to be exactly what we talked about a year ago. 
but in the next two weeks, we are having that conversation. So we will see some things. We know that certain things are going to continue. We know that other things are going to change. Um, and I guess we'll wait that out to see what happens. I, I'm delighted to tell you automated balls and strikes are going to continue. A lot of people inquire about, you know, what's going to happen to robo-arms. Well, it's not going away anytime <laughs> soon, and we're delighted that we're going to feature it again. Um, on, a, on a deeper basis, though, I think there are going to be some profound operating changes, most of which will not be visible or manifest themselves, obviously, to the general public. Major League Baseball has resources that are beyond the reach of any partner league, or I dare say, any PDL league, whether it has to do with digital assets, whether it has to do with the expertise and the business interests associated with Major League Baseball advanced media, whether it has to do with people who are so smart and so bright around rules development and execution, umpiring, um, and a host of other things, we covet the opportunity to work with MLB, but we also covet our identity. We're really proud of the Atlantic League. We think we stand on our own. We're delighted to be a partner league. But, you know, we did pretty well before the partner <laughs> league designation, and I think we'll do fine if that ever goes away. But, again, we're part of the one baseball theme moving forward. We're proud to be that. And I think that you'll see us doing some things that may strike you as similar to other partner leagues. You'll see us continue, I think, to have our own personality as we move forward. I'll give you a great example. One of the leagues that has risen like a phoenix out of the contracted dust is the Pioneer League out in the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. This is a group that we admire. They responded very quickly and very crisply to become a partner league, and we congratulate them. They are going to be focused on young, first-time professional ballplayers. It's a great niche. It's one that's necessary. It's one that's going to provide a stepping stone to players who begin a journey to Major League Baseball that will go through par partner league development as opposed to necessarily big league organizational development. And we salute them. We, on the other hand, are a partner league, but our emphasis has always been that of a more fully developed, mature, um, experienced ball player. You know, a lot of people yeah. don't realize that Roughly 60% of our opening day rosters will have players with Major League Baseball service time. Another 30% will be AAA service time players. Those are much more mature, fully developed, better skilled players than rookies can be. But for both us and the uh, Pioneer League and other leagues as well, there's a call for the players in our leagues, we all have our own identity. We don't expect that we're going to change our identity. Yeah. As appealing as a rookie league might be, we think that many of the folks who come out to see our games, not all, but many of them, have come to appreciate the level of play in the Atlantic League because it's so good. And of course, that's the reason at the end of the day, Major League Baseball invited us to become their partner on test rules 
because we're the closest thing to Major League Baseball there is without being a, you know, a, a Major yeah. League uh, Baseball League. So uh, we'll, we'll stick with what we, we think we do well, and, and I think we'll be well served by that purpose. Yep, absolutely. I know I can attest to that because I remember growing up going to Nork Bear games and seeing guys like Ricky Henderson, Armando Benitez, uh, and a lot of other guys there. And the quality of play has always been high in the Atlantic League. And, and so I guess with that, I do want to, I have a couple questions before I throw back to what I want to get to. And one of them is sure. kind of a, a pet project question, which I ask just about every single commissioner or league president or anyone who's anyone, I always ask whenever they come on. Because I remember back from over the summer when uh, the commissioner of the American Association, Josh Schaub, went on uh, the Sabre podcast, and he kind of subtly implied that it wouldn't be impossible to have some sort of partnership league World Series, where you'd see the champion of each league uh, compete against each other to kind of crown one superior team amongst all the leagues here. And when I asked Billy about this, he said, oh, well, there's no real plans in the works about it. So I'm going to ask you the same question and ask, is there, is that even a possibility? Because this has been something I've been really beating the drum for for quite some time because I just think it would be such a great showcase of all the leagues. And I understand each league, like you just mentioned, kind of serves its own niche and it may not be exactly fair to have a, a player that has major league service time or is further along in their career in the Atlantic League compete against a roster of players that's just getting started in, say, the Pioneer League, but it's still just an idea I've had batting around my head for quite some time. Well, it's not outside the range of possibility. Uh, a word about Josh and the American Association. He's a terrific leader. He's a very bright, insightful guy. have a great deal of admiration for Josh and the league he represents. He, he really is um, a very thoughtful peer and somebody that I'm um, friends with and, and really enjoy our acquaintance. Uh, he's just a smart guy. This is something that has been discussed. It's been discussed in various, in various contexts, never under the auspices or in direct conversation with MLB. But I never say never. Um, you know, we pride ourselves in being forward thinking. I would characterize this as a forward thinking idea and something that we would evaluate carefully. Um, you know, I, I could see that happening. Equally arresting to us, although I think less likely to happen, would be the idea of partner leagues having some sort of opportunity to mix it up with PDL leagues or other partner leagues that may be developed down the road. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, that isn't a point of real focus for us yeah. be, because yeah. we have to deal with, the, you know, kind of the, the simple put one step in front of another kind of stuff. But, you know, it brings some smile to my face when I think about that. And um, here's the beauty of being a partner league. If the Frontier League cared to host the Cuban national team, as they have in the past, for a basically a barnstorming tour, uh, as circumstances uh, dictate these days, they could do that. And that would be a lot of fun. And that would be something people depending on the community, would be really interested in coming out to see. Um, and, and so, you know, given that kind of flexibility, partner leagues really have the best of both worlds. Now, 
we don't have that formal alignment with a big league club at any of our at any of our clubs. But we have the ability to benefit all 30 big league clubs, and we kind of like that position. It, it gives our players much more exposure, much more opportunity to get back to the show, and it's one of the reasons I think the Atlantic League is so appealing to such good players. Absolutely. And so uh, you've given me a lot of renewed hope in this idea because I, for a while I felt like Don Quixote over here, uh, really just tilting at windmills with it. But uh, to see that there is still some life in it, it, it fills me with a lot of hope for it. So uh, I just have two questions left before I toss it back to Will, uh, because I know we'll get a little bit of uh, a little bit of the business online if we don't ask about expansion. Obviously, Hagerstown has been announced as conditional, obviously, uh, from a month or so back, and then. I imagine getting another team back into the New York market. Obviously, uh, normally there's at least two teams in that greater New York market with Long Island and traditionally it'd either be uh, a Somerset, a Newark, or, or something like that. So I was curious if getting back in the New York market is something, whether it's an objective or just an interesting idea. And then uh, what's the situation regarding Haggardstown? And then the, the second one I'll, I'll follow up with uh, after. Well, let me, let me address Hagerstown to start. Yep. Um, we have been engaged in, uh, tripartite conversations with the state stadium commission of Maryland mm-hmm. and with the municipal leaders of Hagerstown. We like the market a lot. We like the prospective owner in Hagerstown a great deal. And we think that's quite viable. The, conversations are progressing at a rate that we think is quite frankly a little ahead of schedule so we're, we're kind of excited about that okay. generally speaking in addition to that i can share with you we are involved in conversation very specific conversations in four additional communities uh, i'll let those play themselves out but i believe that before the calendar year is half over we may be in a position to reference at least two of those, but I will share that our plans call for two more teams next year and another two in addition to that in the years to follow. Um, when we really allow ourselves to get carried away, we say, gee, we could be a 16-team league. But while we're always interested in expansion, we're always interested in expansion to the right community where there's an appropriate venue, where there's an appropriate demographic uh, mix, and where we think an Atlantic League will, uh, Atlantic League team will prosper. There's some communities out there that are still without a resolution, having gone through contraction, where that just isn't the case. They just don't have the population base or the venue that would allow itself for us to be successful. But we, we are feeling, um, cautiously optimistic about what our league is going to look like over the next 36 months. Awesome. It's kind of fun. It's, well, isn't it kind of fun? I mean, it's, I have a blast of what I do. It's, you know, it's something new every day and it's something I really cherish, but what makes it such, such fun for me is you deal with some, some complex issues and some uh, interesting personalities and you mix all that up and, it makes for a really interesting assignment. So yeah. I'm pretty excited about where we're headed. 
Yeah, absolutely. I imagine waking up to a new challenge, especially in in a topic that's as fun as expansion every day, really is it's refreshing in a sense where it always makes the work interesting. And that's obviously something everyone wants to wake up to, to have interesting work yeah. that keeps your attention here. You've been very generous with your time. So I just have one question left. And then if Will has anything left, I'll let him try and squeeze it in real quick. But I do want to just ask one thing here, because I know we have a lot of listeners from uh, markets that were recently added, particularly from uh, Lexington and West Virginia. And so I was just curious if you think there's one misconception that maybe some fans in those markets may hold about the Atlantic League that isn't necessarily true, that's either over-exaggerated or just outright not true at all. Maybe it pertains to the quality of play that they'll see. Maybe that pertains to the experience they'll have. Any sort of a, a misconception like that? Because I know there's a, probably a, a sizable amount of fans of affiliated ball that don't totally understand what the partnership leagues are entirely. I know we discussed a little bit earlier, but I just wonder if there's one thing in particular. Well, let me put two tines on that fork, if you don't mind, Nick. Sure. Uh, One is with uh, formerly affiliated owners and one may be with the baseball fans in those communities. Let's start with the fans first. Okay. I don't care what level of formerly affiliated baseball anybody wants to suggest the quality of Atlantic League play door to door start to finish every day in and out up and down our quality of play and our quality of performance is superior now I'm not going to engage in hyperbole but I will tell you in any calendar year we are going to be asked to transfer somewhere between five and seven dozen players back to big league organizations. Don't forget with an eight-team league, we deal with a 200-man cumulative roster. The quality of play in our league is is truly extraordinary. Now, many, many, many minor league fans don't care about the quality of play. They want to go out for a fun night out with their families, and we absolutely respect that. That's our bread and butter and really our core audience. But for those people who do care and those people who pay attention, their opportunity to see incredibly accomplished world-class athletes is surpassed only by Major League Baseball. And we are really very, very proud of the people who participate in our league. And again, they come into our league and we try to push them along. We don't want people to play in our league for five years. We want them to participate as long as it takes to get an opportunity to move on to the next chapter of their career. The the other thing I think that, you know, is the second time on the fork is this conception that was out there for a long time where the idea of, quote, independent professional baseball was twisted and demeaned by many folks who we would, with a smile on our face, characterize as engaging in dependent baseball. We deal with fully baked income statement. We deal with people who put together rosters, maintain those rosters, manage those rosters every single day. And as the world has changed dramatically over the last 18 months, I think comparatively speaking, we've acquitted ourselves well. And again, this doesn't apply to everybody in formally affiliated minor league baseball, but there were some who who had a point of view that said we were somehow inferior or second class or subpar 
And I think people are learning that just isn't the case. And, you know, I'm going to circle back to where we started. If you take a look at two teams that were invited to become PDL clubs, two of them were Atlantic League teams. One came out of the American Association. What a great testimony to the value of those organizations, the stability of those owners, the uh, quality of their ballparks and their communities, not to mention their fans and their players. Great, great testimony. And I think that a lot of preconceived notions were set on their ear in the middle of last year when those those clubs decided they were going to be PDL clubs. Absolutely there. And that's... It is a true testament to what's been built over, you know, the past three decades of, of this kind of modern, independent, and now partnership uh, baseball. It it really is is a testament to that. And on that, I know we've ran over a little bit. So, Will, if you have anything else you want to try and squeeze in here, real quick. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So the the one thing I wanted, I really, really wanted to touch on. I've been thinking of this question uh, for a while now, playing it through my head. Uh, so. Uh, now I'll finally get to ask it. Uh, so this isn't the first time uh, under your tenure, Rick, that the Atlantic League has added a team that lost an MLB affiliation, as is so common this year and going forward. And, of course, with you guys adding New Britain for the 2016 season. Um, and at the time, New Britain had solid attendance in their last season as a double-A market, just over 4,000 fans a game. Obviously, mm-hmm. New Britain didn't work out their long term for the Atlantic League. So I guess I was curious if there was anything you learned from, uh, I guess, bringing in New Britain and it didn't really work out. And of course, they've moved on to the Futures League. And what's the difference between where New Britain was at the time and where Lexington and West Virginia and any teams you guys are looking to add? uh, What's the difference between those two situations that gives you confidence that these teams you add can sustain long term success in the Atlantic League? You know, Will, that's that's one of the best questions I've ever heard. Um, in, in the case of New Britain, I, I think that the community felt damaged. I think that we probably underestimated some of the regional appeal of, um, of the club that had been there before. I think that the mix with uh, a team going to a brand spanking new ballpark in Hartford, which was a year in delay after leaving New Britain, was still a consideration. But most of all, I think we got a late start. And, you know, we we had really a Herculean effort put forth by the New Britain Bees that when they moved into New Britain, they were already well, well, well into the calendar new year. And their late start coupled with some remedial activity that had to take place in the ball club and the construct of an organization put them at a disadvantage they were never able to overcome. Now, one could argue the same thing in Lexington and in Charleston. But here's the difference in our view. Number one, everybody has been set back regarding their plans for 2021. And in fact, I dare say PDL seasons are still going to be readjusted again. Second, sometimes absence makes the heart grow fonder. Now, some would argue absence makes people forget, but I doubt very much that people are going to forget minor league baseball is out there. And I do think the pandemic 
as it as you know as the pandemic begins to intersect with vaccinations uh, we're going to see light at the end of the tunnel in fact we're seeing a lot of encouraging signals just today um, and people are going to be anxious to come back and see live entertainment we tend to be social animals we all tend to want to do things with our family everybody's trying to get out of the house and again i think that augurs well notwithstanding timing for this season uh for everybody in outdoor entertainment particularly outdoor summertime entertainment most of all though i i think we need to give testimony to civic leaders and owners in our new expansion communities uh, I'm going to start with Gastonia. Uh, we are so excited about Gastonia, North Carolina. Great travel gateway for High Point, North Carolina. Brand spanking new ballpark that is really unique. It's the most intimate ballpark ever built in our, uh, our league. Built though to a specification that we had the ability to, um, modify and do some clever things with. And it's going to be a really fun place to watch a ball game. And we're so proud of that organization from the top down. We are so proud of that community. And because of some of the things we've done there with ownership in the community, we think that this is going to be a tremendous success in a community that's kind of growing like a weed at the moment. Then moving on to, in order, Lexington and Charleston. Uh, if you look at the Lexington legends, it is startling to us that that market was available. We were very concerned about its Western distance and its Western reach for our teams, but it is an ideal Atlantic League community with a tremendous organization. Um, the owner of that organization is young, he's fearless, he knows exactly what it takes to be successful in our league. In many ways, Andy Shea will tell you that he's more excited to be with us than he would be in a PDL, not because he wouldn't aspire to be in a PDL league, but because he has freedom in terms of roster composition, in terms of coaches, and in terms of doing things in his market that he might not otherwise be able to do with a professional development league club. Meanwhile, in Charleston, we, we are really excited, and I'll tell you why. Uh, the West Virginia Power really are a statewide, a statewide team. They are, with modest exception, uh, the state's minor league baseball team. Yes, there's another team um, on the grounds of, of West Virginia, but we, we think the Power uh, are really a state team. We are getting ready along with the ball club to announce a couple of pretty terrific developments. And I don't want to get out over the tips of our skis on that, but I think we have every expectation and um, properly have that expectation that that team is going to prosper in the Atlantic League. I'll be very surprised if we don't approach a doubling of their traditional attendance just because of some of the changes that are going to be taking place with that organization and that community. So we have reason to be very, very optimistic. Now, will they all happen this year? No. Nobody has enough time right now 
to properly market their teams, either to the commercial community, to the season ticket, or to the guest community of people who buy game by game tickets. But we, we think that there is a big light that's about to go on in the Western states of the Atlantic League. And, you know, we, we, we are where we are. And again, I think we're all becoming increasingly optimistic about our ability to get back to some set of new normalcy. And with that, I think our ability to plan for 2022, both with our three newest clubs and again, uh, a couple of additional clubs is tremendously encouraging and gives us great reason for optimism throughout the league. And uh, you touched on Lexington and a really interesting point about about the geography, and the, and you acknowledged that you guys were worried about um, how how far west Lexington, Kentucky is. And this is that this is a topic that Nick and I have discussed at great length on this show, and, and I've said multiple times, I guess before it was announced that Lexington was going to join the Atlantic League. Once it became pretty apparent that, as far as the Frontier League, maybe. They had a team in Florence that they'd already worked with. As soon as it became apparent that the Frontier League wasn't going to uh, look to bring in Lexington or Lexington wasn't interested in the Frontier League, whatever whatever happened, um, that, listen, it, the geography might not be great. There might be bumps, but the market's so great that you have to – you can worry about some of those travel problems later, but you got to go get the great market that is Lexington. Is that is that kind of how you view it? Uh, not, not in the altogether, but it does start with market and it starts with operator. And, you know, the, the operator in that community took a look at, uh, the American Association. He took, the, took a look at a summer league, a summer wood bat league. He took a look at the frontier league. We are fortunate that he reached the conclusion he did with the Atlantic league. And we're grateful to Andy Shea about that. But we don't cut anybody any quarter on that either. I, I think Andy was attracted to our roster requirements. I think he bought into the idea of performance and and player capability. And I think he he bought into the idea that we have a full seventy game home season or home home stand for each club. Um, you know, it's in many places. It's about dates. And if you can get the right number of openings, you have more opportunity. And Andy made that calculation and uh, he came up, you know, thumbs up on, on on the Atlantic League for that part. He really likes our roster flexibility. He loves the idea that he can find a, you know, UK graduate and, you know, bring in an, an athlete who might have been a pro, might have been a major leaguer. But he went to he went to school at Kentucky. Or at Louisville, uh, he loves the idea that because of their proximity to Cincinnati, which is only a, a 110 miles up the road, that he can bring in a guy like um, you know B.J. Phillips and be successful. He or Brandon Phillips, I'm sorry. Uh, he he likes the idea a lot that there are players who will be on his squad and who could be playing in the big leagues. By the end of the year, just like we had three players do last year who were, or in right. 2019. So he, he had a little different kind of calculus and he is a tremendous advocate for our league. And if you're me and if you're our board of directors, you are delighted when you can 
invite somebody like that to the league because it's clear they appreciate what the league stands for, what it is, and the values associated with the league. And again, not everybody feels that way. And we accept that and we acknowledge it. And um, just because they didn't select us as their preferred choice, that doesn't mean we don't wish them well. You know, it's we live in a very small world and, you know, we want everybody in minor league baseball to do well, not just us. Right. And I think that's uh, that's pretty much all the questions I have, Nick. Uh, if there's anything else uh, else you wanted to add, feel, feel free. I, I think I'm pretty good right now. I'm sure if I had, you know, 15 hours, I could come up with a lot more here. But uh, I appreciate you taking the extra time to talk with us today. And uh, as kind of tradition around here whenever we have any guest on uh we normally like to reserve at least a couple minutes for them to say anything they want to say promote anything they want to promote if they want to maybe clarify something or if something else came in their mind about a topic that they they wanted to say before uh, ending off the interview uh we give them the end of the show to do that so i'll extend the the same courtesy to you now well thanks so much nick and and you know to nick you and, and will to you i, I want to say thanks um I've enjoyed being with you. I hope we can do it again. I believe you're going to have cause to want to talk about what we're doing here in the next 365 days for a whole host of reasons. For re- And again, I can't tell you everything we're working on, but we're doing some stuff that people have never contemplated before, and I'm excited about that. But most of all, I'm excited about the Atlantic League. Um, you know, it's, a, it's an honor for me to do what I get to do every day. That doesn't mean it isn't without its challenges. But um, there aren't too many people who get to see and do and meet the people. Um, I, I'm literally grateful to be associated with every day. And uh, the Atlantic League affords me that opportunity. And, gee, every once in a while, I even get to pull a paycheck and, you know, cash it in. So um, I'm a lucky guy, yeah. and, and I'm delighted that you recognize the league. And I thank you for that. We're we're pleased about that. and privilege that you would have me on the on the podcast thank you it's it's entirely our pleasure it's entirely our honor to have you on let me tell you you're more than welcome on whenever you want and i'm sure when some of that big news comes out we'll be reaching back out to you to have you back on again well that'll be my pleasure i'll look forward to it thanks so much All right, we're back here again, back in the present day, if you would. We'd like to once again just thank Rick for coming on the show. Uh, as we kind of just said at the end of that uh, interview, uh, when that big news that he was teasing towards the end of it comes out, we'll be sure to get in contact with him, and we'll definitely have to get him back on the show again to talk about everything and anything Atlantic League. And I'm certainly excited for a lot of the things he said in there. So I guess we could just start at the beginning of the interview and and debrief it from there i do appreciate his his answers about somerset and uh, sugarland and how he's saying well we kind of knew about somerset and i got the impression that i was like okay well sugarland was a bit we weren't totally surprised by this but at the same time you know they were the ones that weren't really giving us much indication it was coming somerset was kind of letting us know along the way yeah, I mean, t- to be honest with and and you can understand that, I mm. think just because, I mean, the Somerset Patriots have been in the league since the beginning, the Califers have, have been in the Atlantic League since the beginning, 
Uh, as far as the Sugarland Skeeters, I mean, they, they've had a ton of success in the Atlantic League, and they're a great franchise, but definitely not that, uh, that kind of historic franchise the Patriots are. So I, I guess I could kind of see that. But, Nick, if, you, if I remember correctly, wasn't it, it – it was like as far as the rumors went about, about this, like pre, pre-pandemic – it was originally talk of it, talking about like Sugarland first, and then like the ESPN article came about Somerset, right? Yeah, and from what I recall correctly, uh, I remember it was Sugarland and St. Paul were the first two that we were like, oh, they're going to go, they're yes. going to go. And I remember making a big deal out of the fact that St. Paul said, oh, we're not interested in independence in our blood, which really, you know, that looks like a great statement now after, you know, what is it, eight months later now? So yeah. there's that. And Sugarland stayed oddly quiet for a very long time. I don't recall if they released the statement or not, but yeah, it was that. And then there was like vague rumblings of Somerset going and everyone's like, ah, not really. The Yankees have Trenton and why would the Yankees, you know, do something different? Yeah. Everyone's pretty set in this region. So they just don't have a dance partner. And then, yeah, you're right with the ESPN article and everything came out. And I was like, oh, okay. They are in fact leaving. That's surprising. Yeah, so it was as far as the yeah as far as the beginning of the interview, it was it was just interesting to see uh, how that all went down. I guess Somerset really kept them in the loop the rest of the way. I guess it, it, a little bit in reverse order from what I assumed it to be, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, but that's that that was the beginning part, and then we then we started to talk about the process of it, right? Yeah. And, um, which, before we get into that process, I, I do want to cut in real quick and just say, sure. I was surprised that he also said that two other Atlantic League teams were contacted by Major that's League true. Baseball. So, you think that's, I don't know, I, I would think Long Island and yeah. Southern Maryland? I thought SOMO, or SOMA, uh, however the hell you do the abbreviation for Southern Maryland, I thought them maybe... I think we both agree with Long Island. I agree with you there. It has to be. I got to imagine the Mets called and checked in on that, especially when Binghamton looked like they were on the yes. block. Yes. Because, I mean, you put your double-A team on Long Island, your team based out of Queens, it's a real nice local connection there. I mean, already it's like the Ducks take up just about every quadruple A or the Mets cut. So it just kind of would be a natural fit. That's why actually I'm kind of surprised Logan Verrett's now with Cleburne in the American Association. I would have thought he would have been perfect for Long Island, but right. I, you know, I guess he's a Texas guy, he wants to be in Texas, but uh regardless, yeah, that one I think is certain. I thought maybe High Point because they're a new team in a nice area, brand new ballpark. I could see that making sense too. Yeah, I mean I don't think there would be a clear like affiliate fit mm-hmm. for High Point. Uh, and my other concern with them would be, well, we don't know how what the long term outlook of the market is yet because they've had one season. Very so, fair. you know, I, I think the second one's definitely not as easy. I mean, Southern Maryland's been around, but it's not like their attendance numbers are are great at all either. However, they are an hour outside Washington, an hour outside of uh, Washington D.C. And when you think about it. I know the the Nationals moved their high A affiliate to uh, Wilmington, Delaware. So maybe mm. they checked in on Southern Maryland before making that move. That could very well be it too. Also, we were kind of surprised because Frederick left, which was an they were an Oriole affiliate. Yeah, I could see maybe if it could be Baltimore that checked in on them too. I know that Baltimore kept. Could be. Yeah, it could very well be it because I mean, if it's a newer ballpark than one of the other affiliates got, then. Uh, 
That could also right. be a two. It could even yeah. possibly be a uh, Lancaster or a York, too, if you're thinking, like, maybe the Phillies. Or even yeah, the, sure. Na- I mean, even York, the Nats, York, really, too, because, I mean, they have... York, Her- is a lo- York, York is a lot closer to Baltimore than people think. Mm. So, yeah, that could, that could be it as well. I, there's a lot of... The one team I think we both agree on, but a lot yeah. of possibilities for that second team. Regardless, yeah. those teams are still in, yeah. and uh, and that's that. Mm. But yeah, it was just it was it was interesting to hear about the process of mm. um, of how this whole about how this all ended up shaking out. And I know as we start to uh, get into the future, I know we're going to hit on this probably for a while here. I think believe the question I asked about. The, lit- the pending litigation, right? Mm. And we've talked about extensively on the show. We've talked about Tri City was a great market. I was thinking, hey, this makes way too much sense to come be an Atlantic League market. They choose to go to the Frontier League. Uh, we've talked about how they've only have a three year commitment at the moment. And I kind of, and I, if you remember, I kind of thought Nick was crazy for saying that Tri City could uh, be an Atlantic League franchise after after that three-year run is up i no longer think it's as crazy uh definitely definitely not because i mean rick white straight up said it if if a team was planning on suing major league baseball they were not coming to the atlantic league this year yeah and so um so that's the interesting thing and of course staten island is in that boat as well you'd think that lawsuit is uh wrapped up as well uh, plus he, uh, me- he did mention he did mention explicitly there were some ownership groups that didn't want to continue in their market and that's pretty mm-hmm. spot on for Staten Island yeah yeah d- definitely so as far as Tri-City I guess I guess what did you make of those comments and are, are you feeling more confident in your uh, take about Tri-City now I'm feeling like I was crazy like a fox because it, it just makes a lot of sense here. And this does help back that up for me. Because it just makes... Like, we discussed at length why Tri-City makes all the sense in the world for the Atlantic League. The market is big enough to be an Atlantic League market. The ballpark's good enough. And there certainly seems to be a desire there. And it just yes. seems like... And again, I understand that, you know... Incogvilia and the Atlantic League may still not be seeing eye to eye, but we do know he was going to return as the manager of Sugarland if there was a 2020 season. So it's right. clear he's fine being in the Atlantic League, and I think he does also enjoy having the kind of roster flexibility to be able to bring his guys in, which you do not get in the Frontier League. And it just mm-hmm. seems very odd that you'd go with a guy like Incogvilia, if you were concerned at all about, you know, the usual things that joining the Frontier League would bring in, you know, things such as the price tag associated with running the kind of a team, to kind of bring in all these heavy hitters too. I mean, you could just take a look at the Tri-City roster for this year. It resembles probably one of the best we've seen in the Frontier League in some time and could honestly probably be competitive in either the American Association or the Atlantic League. And for me, it just seems an awful lot like they're laying the groundwork to say, all right, we're going to take these three years. We're going to let the litigation run its course. We're going to see how we like the Frontier League and if that's our kind of speed. And if it's not our speed to kind of learn the ropes in this league so that way we can make a jump over to an Atlantic League 
still have these kind of close regional rivalries because they will presumably have Staten Island, they'll presumably have uh, Long Island as well, and and then of course you get a little bit further out there, you get teams in more southern Pennsylvania, you know, Maryland, and out from there, but you'll still have some regional rivalry going there, and you'll be able to jump two feet in with experience, and the learning curve will be significantly diminished. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Already, I was so-so on the plan. I wouldn't be surprised one way or the other. Now I'm starting to genuinely believe that plan of, yeah, we, we're going to make the jump in three years. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely definitely on the table. Um, and I could, I could see it happening. And I would love for it to happen because it's a great market. Uh, it, it'll be interesting to see how they do, I guess, attendance-wise in the Frontier League to start. I, I think it'll be pretty good, especially with that team they're going to be fielding. It's going to be really fun to watch. Um, and as far as the other teams we're looking at, Hagerstown, we, we talked about. Um, and, you know, it, it seems like Staten Island seeming more, more and more like a lock. I think, so if we're accounting for, for four... I, yeah. So he said, j- just to clarify, I'm pretty sure he said that an announcement about those teams might be coming out somewhat soon. Yeah. Know? From yeah, from what I hear, at least through the grapevine, is I think Stan Island we're going to get some clarity in next month to the beginning of that May. Makes sense. Yeah, like right around then we're going to get a lot more clarity on it. There's still things that need to be tied up there, but it's well on its way. It's just loose ends need to be tied up and. And some other smaller things, like I don't want to say they're smaller things because they they still are hurdles to clear. But it's trending more towards end of April that that situation will start to you know solve itself. I don't know about Haggardstown. Obviously, I think we it wouldn't shock me to say, oh well, they're going to come in in twenty two if you have an agreement in place to build the ballpark and it's being constructed and they say, okay, it'll be open in 23 or 24. And you just have to spend a year or two in the decrepit old one. If that's the case, I think it'd be all right. You get some time to build up a brand. It's not going to be great because again, it's just not a good ballpark down there, but you get two years to kind of get your operations figured out. And then you're able to go look shiny new ballpark. The only like, other edge of the sword on that one though is i wonder if it's a great idea to say oh we're playing year one in this ballpark and then we're going to move to a totally different location that's you know it's so close by but it's still a different one as people adapting to that i'm not sure if that'd be a serious issue or not i think somerset had to do that their first year and i think possibly nork as well it's been done in the yeah. past. It's certainly doable. I'm just not sure if that's an ideal situation for a market that already traditionally has had issues drawing in attendance. And let's be real here. That first year is very important. And how many people are going to hold on for the, oh, well, they're getting a new ballpark next year. I mean, if people know about the ballpark, they'll probably be like, oh, well, I'll just wait and go next year. I don't need to go to this right. old garbage one and the ones that don't know about the new ballpark and be like, oh, they're playing the old garbage one. I have no desire to go sit in there. Sure. I think as far as Somerset, I know Somerset was a traveling team that first year hmm. uh, back in, I want to say 98. Yep. But, um, but yeah, so I, I think that's the, that's the big question. Is the Atlantic League, because is the Atlantic League willing to let 
Hagerstown play in that old stadium before while their new stadium's being built? I think that's the question. Um, I, I don't see. I don't know if they would because with an old stadium, I mean, we're talking about an average attendance. It's not like we're talking about like, oh, they're 2,200 and, you know, that's not great in the Atlantic League, whatever. We're talking about like 900 people. I know, and like, that's not survivable. 900 people a night. And it's not survivable. And if you're bringing in, if you're, I don't care if you're only playing in it for one year in the Atlantic League. I mean, with all the expenses you now have to pay, you're going to get a slaughtered. Jumping from the Atlantic League, and you're drawing in. And, and I'm sorry, even at, let's let's say they the greatest marketing team ever, and they get it up to 1600. Like, still, that's 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 that, that, those are really bad numbers. Tough. Yeah, that, and it's not even like it's one of those deals where you can go, oh well, we'll schedule creatively and we'll make sure we're home every weekend or or something like that. You're going to have days in the middle of the week. And also, there's only so much expense cutting that you can do, you know, like, you're still going to need to have a certain amount of money dumped into game day and operations around that, even if you want to make cuts to the field roster and just bring in guys that you can get uh, cheaper. I mean, there's, I mean, most of the guys in this league are getting roughly the same amount of money. So there's only so much cost cutting you can do there. But you can't skimp on the game day experience because, again, anyone that nope. comes to those games is going to remember that as the experience, and they're going to go, well, I had a terrible time, so why would I go to one that's just in a newer ballpark to have a terrible time, you know? So Exactly. I, I definitely agree with you. It's a rough situation, and I think it would have been made a lot easier if it was a situation where it's like, okay, well, we're going to have to be a tenant in a stadium while we wait for ours to get built, but the other stadium was built in like, let's say the 60s or the 70s. That's a lot easier of a sell. It's still like a 50, 60 year old stadium. Don't get me wrong. There's going to be a limitation on it, but it's going to be a lot easier of a sell than a hundred year old stadium. Oh yeah. No, it, it, it would definitely be a much easier stadium because I, I would almost make the argument that you just, you just can't play one more game in that stadium. Honestly, it, it's, it's it's that bad and much less an Atlantic League season of of seventy home dates. I oh mean, God, yeah, no, it can't hold up for that. No, it's seven seventy home dates is just not. It's it's just not plausible. So I'm excited to see what a new Hagerstown market can do. I, I mean, until a new stadium is built, I, I don't think unless plans are even finalized to build a new one, I just don't think you can yeah. even have that conversation. But I mean, it's good. It's good to have and. I mean, so we're still talking about, you know, putting in putting in teams for 2023. So, you yeah, know, it could be still... well underway. You, you, you could have a traveling team. You could make them a traveling team for that year. You could have a Road Warrior team while it gets built. I mean, I, I think that could work. But I, I think Hagerstown's still a while away. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I mean, it's just... It's such a tough sell there, and I just want to be clear. I believe in the market. I think Hagerstown as an actual baseball market makes a lot of sense i think it could be very successful there it's mm. just i don't think it can be successful with that ballpark no. it's, it's where I'm, I'm i agree with you yeah and i i do like the idea of it being a traveling team for a year i'd almost be down to say you can make it almost like you almost steal from like the the ppl's league the professional lacrosse league or pll I think is actually yes. what it is. Yeah, you steal from their model where it's like, okay, well, you go to various cities and you play like almost mini pop up tournaments, and then 
you go from city to city and then eventually you pick one i think it's like annapolis where they play their championship game or baltimore down there they play like their championship one oh, that's, yeah that's interesting like they could you could do something like that where you say all right we're going to play of our 70 technical home games you could say we're going to play 20 in this market and then we're going to play 20 in this market and we're going to play 10 in this market or do Something like that, where you say, we're here for a week and we're here for 10 days. Then we're here for 10 days here. It's still a traveling market, yeah, but you could test out other markets. Especially if you want to say, you start this team for the 22 season. If you already have your market that's going to go in with 23, you can have them play out of that 23 market. The sister one. Yeah. You could do that. And then you get people used to having Atlantic League baseball there. So that way when it pops up, you're like, oh, I remember this. Now, of course, again, there's the problem of now you have brands conflicting with each other. Because now you have a Hagerstown brand that was a pseudo home team for like a year. And now a new team's going to come in and replace it. That could be confusing. And I do understand why you'd want to avoid that. But it is an idea. And there is something to at least, I think, the model I'm throwing out here that you could mend and adapt to to make it work because if they're going to be traveling to all these other cities anyway what's the difference if you right. pick like uh, two cities where you play 35 games here 35 games here I, I don't think there's there's too much of a difference although i think you're right that you if you're going to have a hagerstown team you want to get the market used to it i think you, you made you made a good point there it, it's a complicated situation that hopefully we get more clarity on. But it, it's interesting because it's a really unique situation just because we haven't really seen uh, a case like this where they want to bring in a team but they and they want to build a new stadium. That's, that's all well and good. But like when a stadium there already exists. Exactly. So they could, they, they could just say, listen, whenever you have your stadium built is when you're going to play. And that's all, that's all well and good. However, if you're banking on because it's pretty clear they want it, they're going to be they're going to be a 12 team league by the 2023 season. If you're factoring in Hagerstown into that four, maybe they are, maybe they're not. Would have to assume they are. Mm. You then you would have to develop a plan like like you're saying, Nick. If a ballpark isn't ready for 2023, hopefully it could be, but I, I don't know that that would have that would still have to move pretty fast to yeah, get there. It certainly would, and really the only other comparable that I could think of, which isn't even exactly a perfect match, but I'd say it's probably about a 60% one, is Virginia Beach. When they were in, I believe it was 2015, they wanted to put in a team into Virginia Beach into a ballpark that'd be built right by like their main sport complexes all are. It'd be where if you were to put just about any other sports team, it'd be based out of there. And it was Mm -hmm. supposed to be like a 5,000 seat stadium, walk around concourse. Really, it would adapt a lot of the more modern building trends we've seen. Uh, I've talked about this in the past about how more modern ballparks are wraparounds because they want people walking around because people tend to treat a ball game as a social event as opposed to a sporting event. And it was going to really take on a lot of those trends to it. And you could still see like concept art and everything for it. And they had a team already picked out. It was going to be the Virginia Beach Neptunes. They were going to play out of there. And everything was all square to go, but they just never could get the funding straightened out. And there was a lot of issues with getting the stadium built and ultimately wasn't built. And the team kind of fell by the wayside or something similar happening in Haggardstown that, or Hagerstown rather, that, uh, 
happened there. So that is a concern here. But the real question that's left here is if we're assuming Haggardstown or Hagerstown, I'm going to mess that up a lot. I'm, I can already tell if that's going to be the one. I thought it was going to be Gastonia that I'd be messing up, but it's going to be Hagerstown. It's going to be the one that I mess up a lot. So it's going to be Hagerstown, presumably Staten Island. Those two seem like fairly good locks of the four. If we can say Tri-City is the third one, who's the fourth? I don't know. I, I, there's gotta, I think there's some market out there that we haven't even mentioned. Because the fact that Lowell hasn't, like, is just not going to play baseball this year makes me think that, they're, that the Red Sox are going to bring them back in. Because yeah. bring because if you're if the Red Sox weren't planning on bringing you back in, why haven't you made any plans? Exactly. You know? Yeah, like it, you're not just going to sit dormant two years in a row. Not only does that kill your brand, it kills your finances. Yeah. So I, I think that th- there's definitely a reason for lull. That's why I I don't think a market there is going to happen. Paul Tuckett, I would be surprised if it happened. Yeah, that, uh, it would need major renovations to McCoy or a new ballpark. And if they're tearing down McCoy, they're not building a ballpark. They're building a soccer stadium, an office complex, or a shopping center. I mean, the only thing I could think of is, Nick, you mentioned it. You mentioned to me off air, New Britain. I don't know, I don't know though. I think yeah. there, there's, so many pro- there's so many things you would have to change there with the and it's starting with the stadium you know yeah well the question then would would come to if the red sox are going to take lowell back into the fold presumably portland's not going anywhere that's too close and you wouldn't want to do that to portland they just put a new team in worcester so obviously worcester's staying put there plus brand new triple a ballpark yeah so what i would it has to be salem right Salem, yeah. The the thing is though is the reason they kept Lowell, uh, they kept Salem over Lowell at least for now is because the Red Sox, the Red Sox own part of the Salem Red Sox. Okay. But like, it's not like that stadium's great or like they, they have great attendance there or whatever. So it would it would have to be Salem in that case. Which, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's not totally uh, outside that, the footprint. Not, it's not at all. It's right. And to be honest with you, like as, as somebody I've actually, I've been to Roanoke, Virginia, probably about like five or like five or six times. Like that's Salem is like 10 minutes outside Roanoke. That's right down 81. It's not, it's not really that far fetched. Of course they've never, they've never had a team in Virginia, but it is right on the way to the Carolinas. Exactly. Literally right on the way. And it lines up there too. I mean, because if you assume you could go to a four-team divisional structure where you have three divisions of four teams, like I've mentioned in the past, and if you were to do that, you could conceivably go with the Virginia team, your two Maryland teams, and one other, or, or you could fix. It's hard to say. If it's a twelve-team, I guess six and six works a lot better than four, four and four. Which, if you go six and six then Salem would have to go in with the North Carolina teams, West Virginia and Lexington. And then in the North would presumably be Long Island, Stanton Island, Tri-City. Then I guess it would be your two teams in in uh, Pennsylvania. But then you'd have to divvy up your two Maryland teams. And I really don't think you want to split them up. So now you'd be in an awkward. See, that's the that's the only thing is how would you do with the divisional structure? You know. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. 
I'd need more time to think about this. If say, I mean, yeah. this is not yeah. not like I've heard anything about. Yeah, this is just like this that. is just spitballing off the top of the head here, and so obviously it's not going to be all worked out. But Salem, I don't think is totally a far fetched one. But you know, again, I would just assume that if they didn't get cut in this go around, why would you not? Why would that change? Like, I understand, like. Something isn't right with Lowell, but keep in mind, Rick White did say to us, there are some Eastern markets that we didn't even talk to. And I'm not sure if that was in reference to like a Norwich or if that was a reference to a Lowell or if that was a reference Vermont, to Vermont, probably. Yep, Vermont could be one. Hell, it could even mean Tri City, for all we know. But yeah. But still, it's who's to really say, you know? Yeah, no. It's. I, yeah, I honestly don't know who that fourth team could be, but mm. hopefully we get some clarity on it soon. That'd, that'd be nice if one just, I mean, Hagerstown came out of nowhere, so maybe this one will too. Yeah, hopefully. It'd be nice to get clarity here, but on the note of clarity, though, uh, we do have some clarity on the horizon for the rules, because it does seem like within the next couple of weeks, we are going to get the rules for this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe it was you who asked him about the rules. I don't recall. Yeah. It's been a little bit since I listened to it. So... He did say that it's going to be two weeks before the rules come out. At least that's what I have written in my notes here. Uh, The automated balls and strikes will be back. And I am curious to know what the other rules are going to be. We're going to talk about some of the rules that are going to be in the, I guess now, Prospect Development Leagues or the formerly known as MILB Leagues. We're going to talk about those in a little bit. But I really hope some of those rules do not make their way into the Atlantic League. Namely, that stupid pickoff rule, which, again, we will go into more depth on in a little bit. But I really hope it's not something like that. I really hope that things like the shift rule are gone because, let's be honest, in the Atlantic League, there's just not that much shifting. You're not going to get that much of a of a change to it. I'm just going to agree with you about the shift rule. It didn't. It doesn't really make that much of an impact in the Atlantic League. So a lot of rules, you can get a good gauge on it by what happens in the, in the Atlantic League. The shift rule, I don't really view as one of them. Yeah, it's it just, they're not seeing that much here. It's Plus, I really don't think, especially when that rule was implemented, you didn't really have enough data to be able to say whether or not shifting was even a worthwhile idea. I mean, like, it's not like yeah. we're going to have that much data built up. Like, even even if you want to give them the full half season worth of data, it's like, okay, you have a bunch of guys that probably have about, what, 50 games played at this point. Like, exactly. I guess it's enough of a sample size, but even then, it's not really like I'm changing my whole structure over 50 games worth of information. Exactly. There's a reason that MLB teams shift. It's because they have years and years of data, right? And yeah. uh, in the Atlantic League, there's so much turnover. Obviously, that's not really the case. And there's plenty of reasons. I mean, if there's like very specific trends from the minor leagues, or you have a guy who's been in there, uh, been in the Atlantic League for a bit, you could. But I, yeah, it, it doesn't really make that. That's not really one that I could get a good gauge on from the Atlantic League. But I, I'm really worried about the one pickoff rule. I, yeah, let, let, let's save it for the MILB rule talk. But yeah, I, that would that would that'd be that would be pretty bad if that if that rule came in. But listen, I think as far as the automatic automated balls and strikes, I think that was inevitable. I think that was always going to be back again for another year. Mm. And it makes sense. I mean, listen, as far as I've been pretty vocal that I think that there's some, I don't mind testing rules for the MLB as long as they're like reasonable rules that could theoretically be in the MLB one day. 
the automated balls and strikes. Absolutely. You need a testing ground for that. And I, I, and as long as, um, and as long as it's, you know, like improving and working, I think, I I think people are just going to have to get used to it because it's not going anywhere. I would even be willing to go as far as to make this my hot take of the week, if you would, where I could honestly see in 2022 having the ABS for spring training games in Major League Baseball. I don't think that's that far of a stretch. Oh, no, I don't think it is at all. We've already seen it in the Arizona Fall League pre-pandemic. Exactly. So it's uh, that, I, I don't think so at all. And you're seeing now the minor leagues are going to get some run through with it. And if you want to test that on a Major League level, spring training is the perfect time to do it. I mean, the games mean nothing unless you're a guy that's fighting for that, you know, 26th, 25th man spot. So why not try it there? And then if you see, you review it from that spring training data, because you'll have, what, 30 teams playing all these spring training games. So you'll have a well and good established sample size as to what works, what doesn't. Then you can implement it in 23. I I really think we're going to have this in here within the next two years. It just is progressing that way. Yeah, it is definitely progressing that way. And even a little bit faster than I thought, to be honest. Mm. If you wanted my honest take, I thought they'd probably do one more year of just Atlantic League and then start introducing it into the minors. But hey, they're throwing it into low A already. I mean, it's here to stay. You might get, might as well get used to it because it's not going anywhere and it's going to be in the big leagues before you know it. Exactly. I'm curious to know because I remember back in October, Rick White mentioned something else involving technology. That was going to be implemented. And I wonder if that means like that that on-the-field timer thing is going to be what's implemented as far as on-field technology. That could be it. I'd be interested to see what he meant by that. Obviously, Like you're talking like in between innings or a pitch clock? Yeah, like a pitch clock. I'd be interested to see if that's what it is. I know there's already something similar to that, at least like the cutting down time between innings I know exists. I don't think there is an official pitch clock. I could be wrong about that, though. Yeah, it, there was one in the Eastern League, I believe, in 2019 that there was a there was a pitch clock, but you know, it didn't. It was it wasn't like the umpires were really enforcing it. Yeah. So, I, to be honest with you, I think at least from what I've seen, like I've watched a ton of college baseball so far in this season, uh, the in the minor leagues too. I've been to plenty of those games. I think you're going to start to move towards an era of pitchers that really work quick because you don't really see a lot of those those like Josh Beckett type pitchers that are mm. throwing one pitch, walking around the mound, picking up the rosin bag, getting back on, like uh, adjust adjusting their jersey. I don't think you see a lot of those pitchers anymore. So I honestly don't know if a pitch clock is going to do that much uh, in, in the near future, but that's just my take. Yeah, I think it's more or less just a symbolic thing where it's like, look, we're trying to speed it up. We got a pitch clock here. I, I'd i agree with you. I think the only time you really see a pitcher nowadays take an abnormally long amount of time is if you could tell he doesn't have it right now or he's throwing a walk or two in a row and he just has no control and he's trying to get himself composed and he's just kind of stalling for time. But to be fair, batters do the same thing. Everybody kind of does the same thing where it's like, okay, I need a second. I need to, you know, find an excuse for something here, whether that's, uh, oh no, my shoe is untied now. I need to retie my shoe or whatever it is. You're always going to find excuses like that. And I really don't think an umpire at any point will ever really enforce something like that. It, it just seems real stupid. I am curious to know where we could go for other rules on this. Because it seems like all the obvious ones are kind of taken. 
I bet you'll see that pickoff rule that they, they put in low A as far as, you know what, I'm just going to say it because yeah. I can't keep hinting at this because yeah. it, it's going to do with the Atlantic League. I really think you will see that rule as far as limiting to only two step-offs slash pickoff moves for at bat. I think that's coming. I would be, I would be very surprised if they implemented that in, in low A and did not implement it in, in, uh, in the Atlantic League. I think there's... There's no way they would turn down the opportunity for to to get data on younger guys and older guys in the Atlantic League. I think that's coming, and I think it's a brutal. I think it's a brutal rule to be honest with you. Like seriously, if you throw yeah. over twice, can when you when when the when the pitcher takes the sign, can the runner just start jogging to second base because you can't step off? Like yeah. I, I don't, I don't understand who came up with that. And frankly, it's a joke. But it, it I, exists I think to artificially. Inf- it, its job is to do the same thing as just about every major league baseball rule, or that's being tested. A lot of them are just designed to go. Well, look, we don't like it's a home run or nothing type league where stealing really isn't encouraged because it's a low percentage player, whatever it is. We want more like things happening. And well, stealing bases is a bang bang play. It's just it's a thing happening. And so its sole job is to encourage stolen bases. And the best way to encourage stolen bases is to handicap the pitcher. Now, personally, I'm not a real big fan of it. I don't like that, you know, it's a balk if you throw over a third time and you don't pick the guy off. Now, I would still not like this rule if you were to make this change to it, but I would be more okay with it. If it was okay, if you throw over and you don't pick them off, it's counted as a ball. I'd be okay with that. I wouldn't be thrilled about it either. Cause then it's like, okay, well on a three, one count, that dude's going down to first. It's a guarantee. The second there's ball three, no pitch is going to risk picking the dude off and throwing a walk there. I'm not a huge fan of limiting it that way. It's just, I, I'm not a fan of it. I think it just handicaps pitchers way too much. Like, I'll I'll go into more detail about it in just a second because I think we should probably wrap up interview talk so that way we can dive headlong right. into the rule talk here. But overall, I don't think it's really going to be all that effective. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I guess to, to wrap up uh, interview, in the interview talk, I thought the talk about Lexington – uh, and the, the new markets coming in, of course, Gastonia as well, West Virginia as well. Uh, but I, I guess he, he's very excited for Lexington. You can tell. Oh, absolutely. Uh, he's, I mean, he, he literally said it. He's like, we, we honestly could not believe that that Lexington did not stay an affiliated team. And yeah. so, but listen, the Atlantic League's not complaining. They'll pick them up just like the American Association in Kane County. Exactly. They, I mean, I can't believe they didn't get picked up, but here we are. Yeah, exactly. So, He's very clearly very excited. He loves the ownership group there. I mean, it, it's interesting that he brought up how Andy Shea, the the Lexington owner, loves so much about the roster rules that he could literally do whatever. Here, here's the Atlantic League roster rules. There is none. You sign who you want. It's, as long as long as, long as, as they, you can they fit they it under play, the cap, you're good. Yeah. No. Exactly. As long as there's very few roster rules, you can pretty much do whatever, whatever you want. Yeah, it's like you need 23 uh, so, guys, and you can't exceed this amount per month. Yep. It's good to hear that he's really excited about about these markets coming in. I'm ready to see them play. I mean, you know, we've been talking about them for months. I just can't wait to see guys on the field. I mean, it's only like about let's see, ten weeks away. We're closing in on it. Yeah. Which We're is, in there. 
Yeah, no, it'll be here in no time at all. I like how he directly answered the question about like, oh, you know, we have some, there were some teams that were contracted that made comments that could be, you know, interpreted as saying the Atlantic League is a lesser league. What do you have to say about that? And he didn't shy away from it. He said, you know, it's just words, not going to hurt us. They're entitled to that decision. I understand that, you know, at that time, there's a lot of emotions going around. It's a big sudden shift, but, you know, we, we disagree with it and, you know, it is what it is. I, I like that he answered that directly. Also, that he expects the attendance to maybe not overnight, not over the course of one or two seasons, but they expect the attendance in West Virginia to double, which would be a huge plus there if they could get that up to, say, around 3,500, 4,000. They could get up to that number. That's a huge win there. And it could really make it a, a huge boom, especially when he said the power we view as West Virginia State team. We know there's another team there, but we really think it's the power that people rally around. Uh, likewise, he also got a hell of a compliment saying that is one of the best questions I've ever gotten. I wanted to point that out. Oh, too. yeah. The New, Brit- the New Britain question. I was like, I, I, was, I've been, I was honestly sitting on that for months. But I thought it was a, I thought it was a good answer as far as New Britain got started late because honestly around for too much of like when New Britain came into the league that that was interesting to uh, to get to hear uh, from the New Britain side of things and so West Virginia State team so you mean the West Virginia Black Bears of the of the prestigious MLB Draft League are, are not the West Virginia State team is that what you're telling me? I think that's the only way to interpret that. I mean, they're not a professional team technically, so how could they be the state's team? Well, I mean, I don't know. There, there's another team there, and uh, I mean, Trenton views it as not subpar baseball. So, exactly. Well, I mean, they're entitled to their opinion, but they are entitled to their opinion. Britain answer was very good. I like how he kind of was saying, you know, Harford played a, a role in it. Plus, the market was still kind of hurt from that. Although, I will say how he didn't mention that the stadium was an issue. That's something to note. That's true. Uh, likewise, I am very happy that he did essentially go partnership World Series is still alive. He also gave uh, Josh Shop some praise there. He thinks highly of him, you could tell. But more importantly than that, though, that it's still an idea. It's not the forefront, but it's an idea and it could happen. The fact that it's still alive gives me hope that it could happen. Now, I don't expect it to, but, you know, we have this knack of saying things on this show and then they kind of happen. So I'm hoping that this is the one that kind of happens. In indie, how amazing an indie ball world series would be is it, it would be a really fun. So, and I know you asked that to everybody. So I know you were very excited to get, uh, and, and cause I, as soon as you started with, I asked this to everybody, I immediately knew what it was. Yeah. Cause I have to keep asking this cause I'm really interested about it. And I really believe in this idea because Obviously, before I was going to say, well, the first place you'd have to host this is St. Paul because, I mean, St. Paul's ballpark is just really immaculate in every sense. So now that that's off the table, you have to start looking at all the Atlantic League ones first and foremost. And I got to say, I would think that either Gastonia or High Point would be the logical fit there for the first one. Not only are they more southern markets, so you could assume it'd be a bit warmer which would be a huge win if you're going to be hosting something presumably in October or early November, you'd want warm. So a bit further south would be better than playing on, say, Long Island, where if you're playing at night one night, it will be like 
in the 30s or low 40s, which is going to be miserable to watch and you're not going to draw attendance for. If it's more like the low 50s, you can still draw people for that. Although I imagine something like this, you'd want to be during the day on a weekend. That would probably be your best bet at actually drawing people in. Uh, but I mean, like High Point and Gastonia both now have pretty much brand new ballparks. In Gastonia's case, brand new. And you could really use it to draw people in. You could do an awful lot with it. And honestly, I just think it's such a cool idea that it, it has to happen. It just has to. You know what? We keep speaking things into existence that might happen. Or, you know, you mentioned maybe even since, I mean, this, this idea obviously wouldn't happen within the next couple of years. I mean, yeah. maybe a new Hagerstown stadium. That could also work too. There's a lot of, there's a lot of possibilities. Honestly, there is no bad Atlantic League stadium to host this in. They're all pretty good. Yeah, th- at this point, they are. I mean, that, that that's the truth. I think that's about all that really needed to get touched on from the interview. I mean, we spent about now 45 minutes dissecting this <laughs> thing. So This is going to be a marathon episode. I know. I thought this was going to be more like a 90-minute episode, a quick in-and-out one, but... It's turning into a long one here. So I guess with that said, again, we just thank Rick White for coming on the show. He's more than welcome back whenever he wants to be back on. And uh, hopefully we'll have him back on either during the season or towards the end of the year to discuss everything uh, in the post-COVID season, I guess. But uh, Absolutely. With that said, we move on now to the only bit of news we really have this week. And it's only really news because some of these rules were tested in the Atlantic League before coming to affiliated minor leagues. And so we have some new rules in the prospect development leagues, which I will undoubtedly continue to refer to as MILB, even though that's not technically Nick. the name of it. But I'm Nick, I'm sorry, dude. Yeah. Please just call them MILB. I, the prospect development league is going to make my head explode. Why? Because it's like the generic name for like Q-tips, like, so we're talking about cotton swabs here or adhesive yeah. bandages. It's like, no, no, they're, they're Q-tips and they're Band-Aids. That's just what they're God, called. It's, it's so bad. Just my, my, uh, MILB. I, like, we can use MILB as, as, uh, as a, a form of protest. So I guess we could start with AAA because that's the least defensive of them all, which is just larger bases, which honestly, um, again, it's whatever. I mean, it's probably a safety thing and that's a good thing. Yep, safety, safety, always good. Yep, so, so I, uh, no complaints there. Exactly, and I mean, it really doesn't. Like as we could tell from the Atlantic League, were you able to tell that there was larger bases in 2019? You know, I, I could like for example, when, when you got to the field, you're like, wow, those bases are kind of big. But I mean, outside of that, yeah, like, it's no. not. They really didn't affect the game all that much. So whatever on it. No, not 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 at all. It's just say, making it safe is like better and to be honest with you i've always been a proponent and i'll tell you this well tell me what you think of this nick i know it might sound weird and it might look weird but i never understood i like i really like the softball rule where you have the one base and you have like the orange base on the inside the only part is it would make that tougher to to call balls down the line but i think that like for a bag for the runner to touch and a bag for the fielder I don't think it's I, I don't think it's a bad idea at all. That's just I know it looks weird I don't, and whatever. I don't hate it. I just I don't not sure just how necessary it is, but I will say this much. It's a lot better than a lot of these other rules that we're about to talk about. 
That is true. I mean, because even double A is not that bad. It's just the dumb shift rule, which again, how effective is it going to be in double A? I mean, probably more no, effective I, than the Atlantic League, but still not that effective, I don't think. Right. Um, yeah. I, so, fine, we'll move on from there. We've already said our piece on that earlier in the show. Now we got the dumbass uh, step-off rule where you have to completely step off now in uh, high A, which, again, we've said uh, this before, it's a dumb rule that's sole purpose is to, you know, encourage people to steal bases. That's its sole purpose. Right. And it's really stupid, and it kind of neuters the pick off entirely. Because how are you going to do that? Any runner is going to see you start to step off, and they're just going to retreat back to the bag. Or if they're yeah. not seeing you step off, they're going to take off running. It's as long as you could tell what the pitcher is doing, it's all well and good. I mean, you're just going on first movement. I mean, that's literally it. So I mean, you're going on first movement. You watch the front leg. As soon as it even twitches, you're gone. Yeah, I, I think it's. That rule is terrible. I mean, you saw what it did in the Atlantic League. I mean, it became it became such a joke, to be honest with you. I mean, De Dennis Phipps is a great player, but when Dennis Phipps is stealing bases in the Atlantic League Championship Series, there's something going on. Mm. So that, well, You're going to have catchers start to throw down the third now, going, ah, he's just not going to steal two on me. Yeah, I know. It, it's... And especially the, the other pickoff rule that I mentioned earlier, it's... Yeah, I just don't understand why why the MLB is convinced that people want like why are they convinced that people want more offense? Because here's the thing: they're trying to think of like what's exciting and makes things happen, and so they go, "Well, offense makes things happen." And normally, it's like, "Okay, well, what's more exciting in other sports? Is a player like dunking a ball or scoring a goal or?" you know, like connecting on a touchdown pass. Those are all things that are like, oh, those are exciting. That gets the crowd up and moving into it. So what's the equivalent for Major League Baseball? Oh, well, that's home runs and stolen bases. And I just don't necessarily agree with that. I just don't think baseball is that kind of a sport. You know, it's no. like, even with football, it is still like kind of turn-based when you get down to it because the offense gets their chance and the defense gets their chance. But you can still score on defense. It's still yep. a general flow game. When the play actually happens, it's still flowing. So that would probably be your best comparable. Trying to make baseball comparable to hockey or basketball just isn't going to work because there's Agreed. always stuff happening there. I can speak more for hockey than basketball. So I'll say this much with hockey. You're guaranteed there's always something happening. There's just play always happening one way or the other. And you can have offense break out in a second and then die a second later. That That's just the nature of the sport. Baseball is not like that at all. It's entirely turn-based. You cannot score when you're in the field. That's just impossible to do. And there's no way around that. Likewise, when you're at bat, you get your shot. You get nine chances if you're the home team to win a game. And if you don't do that, and if you're the way team, you get nine chances to win a game. You have each of these innings to do something. And because there's nine innings of them, there's going to be a lot of drag time in there. It's just a sport that takes time. It's the only, I'd say it's really the only major sport that's close to chess where it's like, okay, we're going to set up everything here. And as the game evolves, 
you're going to have people bring in analytics and they're going to bring in different strategies and they're going to go, okay, things have been the same way for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. What if we do things a different way? And if that different way works, then everyone's going to copy it. It's how it works across every sport. So to get back to the original point of why they think people want more offense, it's just they see, you know, high scoring NBA games where every game seems like an all-star game or an NHL game where, you know, people are just always on their feet because there's always action happening. And they go, oh, well, people like stuff happening. So we need to do whatever we can to encourage stuff to happen, whether that's, you know, more small ball or whether that's stealing bases or whether it's juicing balls so that way there's more home runs, whatever it is, we just need to do whatever it creates the most things. And being that defense has less things happening, defense has to suffer. I agree with you, Nick. And I think that there there are things that if the MLB wants to grow the game, that I think that it goes much further. They just want to make it a baseball issue and a like a product on the field issue. At the end of the day, it's really not. And I'll tell you what, I'll save it for I'll save it as my thing to add for next week because I I have a say I'd like to say I have a pretty good idea of what the MLB needs to do if they actually want to grow the game. And spoiler, it has nothing to do with increasing stolen bases or like taking the shift away. Honestly, I almost think that could be a, its own topic of a show entirely. And I understand it's not really independent ball related. And if it is, it's really shaky relation there. But I almost feel like because it is still the off season, we have like another, I would say, normally I would say like a month, but probably closer to two months where the vast majority of the show is going to be one or two topics that come up throughout the week in an interview. I'd be fine dedicating a segment to talking about this next week. I'd be totally yeah. cool with that because I mean, what else it, are we going to do? As long as there's no big, as long as there's no big news, I'm down to do it. Exactly because I mean, what else are we going to do? Do a preview of Tri City or Kansas City's like lineup? Or I mean, we could like, do Toastman. I mean, we could always do Toastman. I mean, Toastman's a, he's a constant in our lives. Is really what he is, and you need that. But right, <laughs> regardless of Toastman. You know, we could always do team previews later on. That's the wonderful thing about them. We have plenty of time to do them. And the longer you wait, the more players you have to evaluate and the more you can talk about the team. So I'd be fine, you know, doing Major League Baseball and what's, you know, how to grow it. Because quite frankly, I think there are ideas that you could take from independent league ball and apply to Major League Baseball and it help grow the game an awful lot. And likewise, I bet there's stuff that, you know, Major League Baseball is doing, which if you scale it down to the indie ball level, it's applicable there, too. So I'd be totally sure. cool doing that next week. That sounds, sounds like a plan to me. With that, I think we do technically have two other rules here to talk about. And just to wrap up the, the low A rule for the, the stupid pickoff rule that we've been going off on. Uh, is after two non-successful pickoff attempts of the runner gets back into the base in time, the, for the third failed pickoff, so if the pitcher now throws over a third time, this is in one at bat, then is considered a balk. Now, if he were to pick him off successfully a third time, it is not a balk. That is radically That's a very stupid. slim, very slim chance. Exactly, because pickoffs don't really ever work. And really, the only time you see someone throw over more than two or three times in 
and at bat is when there's a really fast runner on and you're just doing everything you can to slow him down because you're like, he's still probably going to run on me. But if I can just hold him a bit closer, I give my catcher like an extra half second to throw down to second and maybe we could pick him off or catch him stealing rather. It's really the Yeah, I mean, the pitcher's got to be really certain they're going to pick him off if they're going to. Yeah. They're going to throw over again. That's, that's pretty rough. That, yeah. Because even if you're like, oh, he's definitely going on this pitch. It's like, well, if I throw over and I don't pick him off, it's like he stole second anyway. So what do I care? Right. So, yeah, exactly. So that's a stupid rule, but I do want to get the rest of that out. Uh, low A Southeast is going to have automated balls and strikes. I think we mentioned that a little bit ago. And low A West is going to have on-field timers for pitch times, inning breaks, and pitching changes. There'll be one clock in the outfield, two behind home plate, and two in between the dugouts. So Yeah, I mean... It's a clock. That's, that's, that's fine. Hey, that's fine with me. Yeah, I mean, it's a clock. It's whatever. I don't really care. It's a clock. Automated, automated balls and strikes, I don't really care about either. I understand there was some, you know, it wasn't great because you'd have guys that would fudge on their height and then the system would screw them on that. So I get that. Same time, though, it is what it is. I don't think it's that bad. It's coming in either way. Might as well get used to it. And quite frankly, I think the system's getting better. So, you know, it is what it is. Okay. That works for me. Yep. So that's about all we got. This show ran a lot longer than I thought it was going to run. You yeah, know? it was a long shot. But yeah, you got a good interview out of it. You got like a 50-minute Rick White interview, and then you got a lot of good discussion. So I think it was a good episode all in all. I agree. I think it was a great episode. Yep. So with that said, we'll go to the plugs, and then we'll get out of here. Uh, if you okay. want to follow the show on social media, you can do so on Twitter at IndieBallPod. You can follow the show on Instagram at ALPB underscore news for all Atlantic League content. Or if you just want, you know, just all general independent league baseball, or now partnership league baseball uh, talk, you can follow the show at IndieBallReport. Uh, you can also follow everything we do video-wise and article-wise and show notes and every episode on the website, IndieBallReport.com. Uh, there's a YouTube channel, too, that's linked on the website, but it's like Indie Ball Report podcast on YouTube. There's a couple of unboxing videos from when we got free stuff from teams, which is always appreciated. And uh, you could check those out, too, if you want. Uh, you can also follow the show wherever you find podcasts. So that's TuneIn, Stitcher, Podomatic, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Like I said, essentially anywhere you find podcasts, uh, we will be available there. So be sure to rate and review if you are able to on your uh, podcatcher feed. Uh, that said, uh, do we have anything else left to add? Uh, so it's a long. It's been a long show, so I'll keep it really quick. So just uh, super excited for Selection Sunday for the NCAA tournament. Go Rutgers, go Syracuse. Duke was screwed by COVID, so I'm considering the streak alive still. <laughs> I guess you could. Because, see, if they would have played FSU and then lost to FSU like they were going to, then, you know, the streak's dead. I can live with that. Yeah. But they didn't get the opportunity to, and that's the issue. Yeah, that's fair enough. Now, that said, they still want to made the tournament, but, you know, I'll take the loophole that keeps the streak alive. Fair enough. As far as I'm concerned, I have really two things here to talk about. I could either go ESPN getting the NHL rights, which is tempting because that's interesting. 
However, I'm going to go with uh, Tom Wilson sit on Brandon Carlo. It's about a week old now. I got to be honest here. I understand Carlo was injured on the play. It didn't seem like that bad of a hit. It seems like Tom Wilson got seven games because he's Tom Wilson and has a history. And just for the history alone and knowing the kind of player that Tom Wilson is, yeah, he deserved a game for it. I think seven's a bit extreme, especially in a shortened season. It didn't seem like that bad of a hit. Like, it wasn't a good hit. It was a borderline hit. But it just seemed like it should have been two for boarding and maybe a game. That's as far as I'm concerned that hit. It, I've seen a lot worse get a lot less. Yeah, you know, I, I, I could agree with that. I think it probably deserved a game or so, but Tom Wilson's Tom Wilson, so you got the hammer. Exactly. That that said, it's like I'm not going to complain about it. It's not that egregious. So, I mean, it just it seemed like a bit extreme, but eh, yeah. it is what it is. So with that said, and nothing else left to add, we'll end this show as we end every show around here. Don't forget to play ball. It's really not. But you know what else isn't great for marketing, Nick? Garbage rules? That's correct. Ah. Uh,